guys, it's awesome to be here. I was so excited when Simon called me up and said, hey, could, could you cover for me on Sunday? Um, I'm excited for him because he's heading off to Hawaii. And he's, he's not the kind of guy to just say, like, I think I need a break in Hawaii. Um, he, he's really the kind of guy that needs to be strongly encouraged to, to take a break and go to Hawaii. And so I was so pleased to hear that that was the case and that some of his friends had rallied around him and said, hey, you guys should take a break <laughs> and go to Hawaii. Um, I'm also really excited to be here because I just feel a strong sense of affinity with you guys as a church, both because of my friendship with Simon, but also because uh, for the five and a half years that my family and I have lived in the United States, for the majority of that time, we actually lived in the parish house right here. And so um, this um, building and the people who meet here are always dear to our heart. And um, that said, I'm also really excited for you guys that you will be moving into a new building. Um, I think that's just going to be a super awesome chapter in the life of Grace City Church. Um, I want to just take a moment to, to pray for Simon um, and Shirley and um, pray for us before we jump into the Word. Lord God, we do... Um, come before you this morning, um, committing ourselves to you, to your faithfulness and goodness and mercy. Lord, we thank you that in as much as you're present with us, that you're also present with those who are dear to us who are far away right now. And Lord, we, we pray for Simon and for Shirley, and we just pray that you would pour yourself out upon them, that you would bless them, enrich them in this time, give them rest. Lord, I pray for us that as we, as we get into your word, Lord, that you would unpack it for us, that you would illuminate it for us, Lord God, and um, enrich us before you. Amen. All right, so as, as a church, over the last couple of months, I guess, you guys have been in the, in the book of Revelation, and this is not the easiest book to kind of wrap your head around. Um, I think the book of Revelation can seem like a poor title for the book at times. It's not the kind of, you know, if you think of Revelation, Revelation to reveal something means to sort of open it up and make it plain. And there are very few modern readers that look at the book of Revelation and, and start reading it and say, oh, wow, okay, thanks for making it so obvious. <laughs> and part of the reason for that is because it's, it's full of, it's full of signs and it's full of metaphors and um, it, it communicates in a way that is shaped um, by um, signs and symbols from the Hebrew Bible and it's, it's written in a way to communicate to a first century, um, largely Jewish audience, but first century people who are steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. And um, when it comes to understanding signs, symbols, cultural context is extremely important. The, um, the science of um, understanding signs and how people interpret signs is called semiotics. And in semiotics, um, one of the key, key things is, is cultural conditioning, how people are culturally conditioned. And, and so if, if I were to show you a symbol, um, this is a... Cantonese or Mandarin symbol, very few of you, I'm sure that there's some PSU student here who's a linguistic student that would probably, or somebody would be able to say like, oh yeah, yeah, I know what this means because I understand Cantonese. But for the large majority of us, we, this means nothing to us. Why? Because we're not culturally conditioned to understand this. We haven't, we, we haven't grown up in an Asian country, or we haven't learned this, we just don't know. It's a foreign thing to us. And in, in a similar way, a lot of the, if, if you're less familiar with the Old Testament maybe, or with um, the way that a first century Christian would have thought, the, the book of Revelation might be foreign to you. So if I told you that this, if you were to go to China, understanding this could mean a matter of life and death, you, you could be fairly concerned. 
But let's say you were driving down the street in China and, and you came across this sign. You would know exactly what it means, right? All of you immediately can tell me, what, is, what does that symbol mean? Yes, well done. <laughs> Why? Because suddenly there's this... Um, the symbol has been placed within a, a, a cultural context that you're all familiar with, that you're all culturally conditioned to understand. And, and I want to encourage you that in as much as some of the, the symbolism and that sort of thing from the book of Revelation can seem just really foreign and really strange, as we, as we, as we read it for what it is, and, and rather than us imposing our own cultural context on it, we seek to place it within the cult cultural context of the day, and we really make an effort to understand that, it becomes a little more clear to us. And unfortunately, there has been a lot of abuse of the book of Revelation. I'm sure that um, some of what you guys have experienced even so far going through the book of Revelation might have, there could be some surprises that you guys have encountered because of maybe being taught things in the past that um, rather than create clarity, create more confusion around this book. And, and my hope is that um, some of what you guys will experience as you're going through this will, will help to just bring clarity and, and simplicity to, to the understanding of this. Um, G.K. Chesterton, he, he said of this book, and though St. John the Evangelist, who, who's the one who wrote the book, he says it, and though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And so I think some people have gotten pretty wild and crazy in their interpretation of the book of Revelation. And, and we can all get a little bit wild when, when we're looking at the book. We can all um, impose our own frame of reference on the book. But I think... God has given us what we need to, 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 to really understand this book and, and for him to really kind of bring alive to us um, what he intended for us in this book. What we want to be able to do is allow the book of Revelation to give us a really big picture of who God is, of his justice, of his, um, his authority in, in the full length of time and, and into eternity, and for that to start to, sh start to shape the way that we live today rather than us try to shape the book of Revelation to fit us, allow, allow strong, a powerful vision of God to shape the way that we live today. So we do have a lot of ground to cover today. Last, last week, uh, Simon covered chapter five. Uh, this week, um, just to give you an overview of where we're going um, we're, we're going we're gonna to jump into chapter 6. And so chapter 5 is the scroll and the lamb, and um, the, it's the scene in front of the throne room of God. Um, the, John's vision brings us into the heavenly throne room, and we find ourselves before the throne of God and, and, and the lamb who is Jesus is, um, is seated next to the throne. And we, the the Scroll comes into the, into the picture, and the scroll is sealed with seven seals, and, and, and there's this crisis. Who can open the scroll? Who, who's worthy to, to open up the scroll? And this, this week, we're going to see those seals get opened and, and see things play out as, as the lamb opens up those scrolls. And, and I think this is something just really important for us to kind of get a grip on um, before we jump into the text, is it just the, what the scroll is, what the seals are, and, and kind of why this is playing out the way it is. And just in its most fundamental, basic sense, um, what, what, what do we imagine the scroll might mean? What, what, is, what, what could a scroll symbolize? God's word, instructions, yeah, um, wisdom, 
So, you know, in that day, something, it's not like today where every Tom, Dick, and Harry had a blog and could just like, hey, I'm going to just like go and write a bunch of stuff. Things that were written down were typically things that they deemed very important. Okay, so parchment and, uh, and, and scrolls, these were like valuable commodities. Even uh, the ability to, to read and write coherently. And, and so the, this symbolizes wisdom. And it's not just any wisdom, but it's, it's the wisdom of God. And so this scroll is saying, within, within the pages of this scroll lies the wisdom of God. The answers to the questions that we have, the unknowns, the uncertainties, the, our, our insecurities and our, our deepest fears, uh, the wisdom that answers all of those questions is, is found in this, in this scroll. But the scroll is sealed. And so not anybody can open the scroll. And, and what, what is the seal? Um, Back in, I'm sure Simon spoke about this as well, but back in the day, people would, you know, if somebody wrote, if a king wrote a dec- declaration or, or, or a letter to somebody, wanted to communicate something important, he'd write the scroll and he'd seal it with his signet ring. And it, and it showed that this, this scroll was um, ratified or like the, the king who wrote it or the person who wrote it put their stamp of authority on it but it also meant that the intended audience, only the person with the intended audience, the, the, intent, the person who could rightly interpret that had, had the right to open that up, had the right to break those seals and, and read it. it. It would be like you going, taking the mail out of somebody else's mailbox and reading it. You just don't do that. And so, and so Jesus, the lamb, is the one who was found worthy to open up these seals. And so every time a seal is opened up in the text over the next 14 verses, the thing I want you to be thinking about is whatever plays out, whatever, whatever it is that you see, that whatever it is that happens is playing out within the context of God's wisdom and his sovereignty and, and the authority of Christ. Everything that happens is, is framed Kind of like that stop sign, everything, everything needs to be interpreted within the context of God's sovereignty and his wisdom. And so let's jump into Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to have the text up. In verse 1 it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And, and again, I just want to say, why, why the Lamb? We, um, I think we know that the Lamb is Jesus. But it begs the question, why not just say Jesus opened up the seal? And I think, I think there's something within the symbol of the lamb that's really important for us to get as, as we go through this. John is uh, implying a sense of authority, significance, and, and, and power to, or his vision is to this lamb. But but rather than having an image of a, a conquering Jesus, of a powerful king Jesus, um, there's a power that he wants us to uh, he, he wants us to, to know and see and understand that is a power different to what the world understands as power. When we think of power, we think of the power to to conquer, to destroy, um, but there's, there's, a, there's a power in love, and, and Jesus explained that there's no, no greater love um, has he than, than he who has laid down his life for his friends. And so there's, there's a different kind of power that John wants to emphasize in this. It's the power of the Lamb of God who, who took away the sins of the world. And then he says, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. 
and he came out conquering and to conquer. And now, for a first century Jewish audience or any first century Middle Eastern, near Middle Eastern um, audience, that reader, they would have read White Horse and the first thing that would have come into their mind is, is victory. When, when an army went out and conquered and came back, the, the ruler of that army, the king, would come in riding on a white horse. And, and what, it, what it portrayed was his, his power and his strength and his might over others. And, and here, um, this, this rider goes out to conquer on, on a white horse. He, it doesn't say that he's conquered yet, but he's, he's already on his white horse. And later in the book of Revelation, you'll see another character appear on a white horse. And, and that, that'll be Jesus. So Jesus is going to appear in, in this vision, riding on a white horse. But, the, but this rider, in the context of, of what we're going to read for, like as we go on, the, this doesn't quite fit with our picture of who Jesus is. Um, there, there, seems, there seems to be... Um, an arrogance. Um, there seems to be something about this character that um, is, is untethered to the character of Jesus. And, and as we read on, it'll probably become more clear, but I think the most fundamental thing at this point that we can say about the white horse is, is that it points to living in a fallen world um, that's tainted by sin, and there's this perpetual domination struggle, this, this need that's driven by self-preservation and fear. Um, and and, and these, the people who are reading this, for the first century Christians who were reading this, um, the, the rulers of that time who were oppressing them would probably have come to mind. So verse 3, when he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And so the red horse, um, I think, signifies war um, and kind of the clash of ideologies um, and the inevitable outcome that, of that, which is severe conflict, and conflict is not always a bad thing. Sometimes conflict is good. Um, I, I tend to be, like my personality, and my wife's laughing right now, is I'm quite conflict averse. So if I see something that doesn't quite gel with me, I'm not the kind of person to, to say like, hey, you know, you're, you're invading my space, or you know, kind of get out of my face. Or I, I tend to be a peacemaker. And it's not a bad thing to, to at times, um, step into conflict. So it, this isn't saying that all conflict is bad. But it's speaking about, um, the, it's, it's speaking about a kind of power that, that the kind of narcissistic hunger for power at all costs um, and the willingness to kill um, and... Yeah, just think, think like in its ultimate worst state, think dictators, okay? Think, think about like narcissistic dictators who have killed millions of people, um, Hitler, Mao, um, Idi Amin, like just, that, that's kind of where your mind might want to go. Um, in his book, How to Be a Dictator, um, this, we were in Powell's book the other day, and I picked up this book, How to Be a Dictator. And I was like, oh, wow, th this is kind of it. And, and Frank DeCotter says this. He says, naked power has an expiry date. Power seized through violence must be maintained by violence, although violence can be a blunt instrument. A dictator must rely on military forces, secret police, Praetorian Guard, spies, informants, interrogators, torturers. And this is kind of what this red horse is describing, is describing war, killing, and death. Um, war. Then we go on, Revelation 6, verse 5 to 8. 
It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. I think the simplest way to describe the black horse is economic injustice. Um, The NIV translates a denarius as a day's wages. And so so obviously the cost of of wheat and barley like at at, at a day's wages is extremely prohibitive to the poor. And, and what it means is somebody might have enough to buy some food for himself for a day, but he's not going to have enough for his family to eat, and he's not going to have enough for, for other needs. Um, kind of a modern equivalent of what the voice was saying might be, like a loaf of bread for $100, but all the caviar in the world for me. Thank you very much. Like, don't touch the oil and wine. These are, these are luxury goods that the poor might not be able to afford anyway. And so I I think it kind of reflects, even in today's culture, this this has been true throughout throughout history, is that when when there is economic struggle and and, and when when people live in in poverty, um, it's often the, the necessities that people need that are impacted by inflation most. And the luxury items um, are, are less affected. And so the, the rich, the wealthy, don't feel the hit of recessions and, and economic downturns nearly as, as badly as the poor. And then I think at any given time, so, so often, uh, the wealthy get wealthier off of the, off by, the, by the exploitation of the poor. And, and so the scales that, that this black ri- the rider on the black horse is carrying, I mean, it's a, it speaks of injustice. And it's saying, man, this, this isn't fair. There are things going on here that just are not fair. And so John's vision shows this playing out within, within the context of God's, God's wisdom and his, his sovereignty. And then verse 7 says, when, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And I can't help but think of Johnny Cash's song, right? <laughs> because um, when a man comes around, do you guys know that song? Yeah, I've, I see some heads nodding, but it's just when... <laughs> And some heads are doing this. <laughs> um, if you don't know that, I thought of like queuing it up and playing it in this moment. But he just has this gravity to his voice that kind of captures the, the gravity of this verse so profoundly. And um, his song, When a Man Comes Around, is it's kind of the book of Revelation in a song in some ways. And, um, but he speaks this particular verse, and for whatever, I don't know why he chose that, but, um, but it's deeply impact, impactful. He says, I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, and with, sa- with salmon, with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Maybe salmon. And so this fourth rider is, is death. And probably of the four riders is like the most ominous. He, he's death. He rides a pale horse. In the Greek, the, this pale could also like infer pale green. And so it really is quite a creepy figure. Um, so he's riding this horse. His name's death. And he has, he has Hades following behind him. And um, I think as a broad category, um, probably the, the easiest death, I think, is a good description. Um, bro- 
It includes violent death, starvation, pestilence, and death linked to wild, wild animals. But I think pretty well summed up by, by the word epidemics. Um, so death by epidemics, where there's like large-scale death happening to people. Um, and and it, when, when it says Hades followed, follows behind him, um, the, the term Hades was, was a term for the grave or the place where people went. In, in the afterlife. So, like, wherever this guy goes, in, in probably the most literal sense, like, he goes and it's just, like, graves left behind him. Mass graves, it's carnage. So, the, this is the scene that we're facing right now, okay? So, it's, it's pretty bleak. Man, this is horrible, right? So, we're... We're trying, to, we're trying to keep ourselves in this big picture of God's authority and wisdom and, and, in, and in Jesus, the fact that he is the conqueror, that he has conquered. But what are we seeing so far? We're, we're, seeing, we're seeing, man, just strife and war and, and injustice and death. And it's like, man, this is, this is really horrible, and, and it's kind of like this really haunting picture. Um, and, and, and this is kind of where the, the people that, that John was writing to, this is kind of where they would have found themselves. They, they, were, they found themselves in this place where they were being killed for their faith. And, and many of them were starving. And there was, they were being... Um, Segregated, they were being marginalized within their community. Um, they they were they were going hungry because people refused to do business with them very often. Um, they they were f- refusing to play into um, the the ideology of the day, which was that Caesar himself was a god, and there was like this emperor cult um, that that Romans were called to follow, and, and, the, and they're refusing to play into this. And so they're like, man, where do we see God's authority in this? And I think in some ways, this vision brings us emotionally, in a lot of ways, to the place that these people would have found themselves in. And they would have been asking, like, man, how, how long? When is this gonna end? When is Jesus coming back? That's what I want to know. And in, in Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples ask him the, the same thing. They're kind of getting sense that, like, okay, Jesus is going somewhere. He's talking about this. Jesus, you're making me nervous. You're going, like, where are you going to go and what's going to happen to us? And, and when are, when is this, when's the end of the world going to happen? When is this, like, the day of judgment that the Old Testament's been speaking of? For so long, when is this going to happen? They're getting really kind of freaked out. And Jesus, Jesus says, says this in Matthew 24, verse 5 to 7. And in, in a lot of ways, chapter 6, the, the, the four horsemen in, in chapter 6 is kind of a summary of what Jesus says. I, I mean, it's kind of an expanded version of, of what Jesus says. Jesus says to his disciples, hey guys, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they'll lead many astray. And so it's kind of like this, the white horse. This dude, with, he looks a lot like the Messiah, but probably isn't. Someone with a little bit of a God complex. It says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. So Jesus is like, don't freak out. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. So that's another thing that, like, in my, um, my personality one of the, and my, my family of heritage, there's an expression that we say all the time when something, like, not so good happens. It's like, well, it's not the end of the world. And it's, it's, yeah, not yet. But it's kind of, that's kind of what Jesus is saying. It's like, guys, you're going to see these whacked out things are going to be happening Yes, I'm going to conquer sin. Yes, I'm going to set people free. 
There's still going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be people coming to deceive. And he goes on and he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And so it's like there'll be war, there'll be famine, there'll be earthquakes. These things will be part of the reality of life in a fallen earth, in a world that's tainted by sin. But don't be, don't be dismayed. Do not despair. So for those who were reading this, they, they knew all of these things. Um, and, and, and yet they were, they're desperately waiting. They're waiting for this day of justice to come. And, and so that's, that's exactly the question that John's vision goes into next. So when we go into the, the next seal... We see something that kind of that I think would have ministered to to these people pretty strongly, and it says, "When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain." For the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, "O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge?" and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So why were the souls of the martyrs under the altar? Um, Because in in a way, well, what's the altar for? Um, I think that's something important for us to, to think about. The Old Testament, um, under, the, un, under the law, um, the way that people were able to come into the presence of God was um, through their sins being atoned for by a sacrifice on the altar. And so the altar was a symbol of sacrifice. It was um, a, a symbol of dying for the purpose, and, and animals were killed on the altar, dying with the purpose of opening up a way for others to come to Christ. And I think it's such a beautiful picture. I think it's an amazing vision, just so compelling, that these people who had died because they had borne witness to God's truth and his faithfulness, so that others might hear and be convinced. These people, these people were counted as a sacrifice. And it's not that their death rescued or atoned those people who heard. But their death, like in Paul's words, if nobody, if nobody preaches, how will people know the word of God? How would they know the truth? And these people were faithful. And, and we're not talking about pastors standing in front of people or like mass evangelists. These were people in their everyday life who were living life differently and were being killed for, for their faith and for their testimony, for the testimony of Jesus. Again, though, the response that's given to the martyrs is that more injustice is yet to come. So they're saying, okay, Lord, when is this going to happen? When... We, we've been killed and we're waiting and, and time is still going on. We'd love to see a day where, where our deaths are avenged. And, and the justice that God's going to bring, their, their confidence is that like, it is going to come one day. It's just a question of when will this happen? But still God says, just, just rest a little longer. In other words, the sovereignty or the, the question of when this is going to happen is something that is in God's hands. And, and even those who have died need to trust God with the answer to that. But the assurance is there that a time will come when this injustice will reach its limit. And then we move on to the next scroll. John goes on and he says... 
When he opened the sixth, sixth seal, when the lamb opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. All of this imagery is drawn from the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel, Hosea, Isaiah. And, and the context that these descriptions are drawn from all speak about the day of the Lord. So if you were to follow each of these, these hyperlinks, as, as some people like to call them, back to the Old Testament, and you start reading around these descriptions, it's all speaking about a day, a day when the Lord is going to come to judge. And so the reader, in no uncertain terms, knows that when, when the vision is describing the sixth seal, you know, okay, guys, this is it. This is the moment. This is the day of the Lord. Finally, this day has come. And so, like up until this point, we've got the four horsemen and we know that the four horsemen are playing out in the context of God's, God's wisdom and, and his sovereignty and his, his sovereign timing. We've got, we've got those who have, have died for their, their faith and, and are waiting and, and their testimony and, and the recognition of the injustice and, and their waiting. And, and that's playing out within the context of God's authority and his timing. And now we see the day of the Lord's judgment playing out in his timing. And this is obvious, I think, to people who were reading at the time because of all of this imagery. But what's funny is for the characters within the story, it also becomes pretty obvious because it says in verse 15 and 16, when this happened, the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And so even these people, these people at this time, I think what it tells us is when the day of the Lord comes, we'll know. When the day of the Lord comes, even those who do not know the Lord will know, hold on a second, this is him. Even those who have rejected him, who have turned away from, turned away from him, who have refused to follow him, will know this is, this is it. This is where I'm confronted with the reality of my insufficiency. And, and even those who, the, the kings, the rulers, those who lorded over and abused their power, even those will cry out, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And I think, I think this, is, this question is, is a powerful question and kind of the whole of chapter seven um, is, tries to answer that question. Who can stand? Um, and I think that's when one day when we're faced with God's um, perfection and his beauty and his holiness, I think that question will be on all of our lips. Who can stand? But the end hasn't come yet, and there's this, this interlude. So we've opened six seals, or Jesus has opened six seals, and then it, it's kind of like commercial break for a chapter. <laughs> and, and it's really like chapter six is heavy. And I think if you're feeling kind of heavy, it's kind of supposed to, there's supposed to be a little bit of a heaviness to it. But then chapter seven comes, and, and I want this to be a heavy sermon, so I'm not going to read the whole of chapter seven. Um, I want you guys to like 
say like, man, Mark really came with like a heavy sermon today. No, I don't, I'm joking, I don't want, I don't want you to do that. Um, but just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 7. I want to I emphasize verse 3 of chapter 7. So just as a summation, the first part of chapter 7 says, these angels come and they say, whoa, 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 don't, do not destroy the earth yet. First we need to go out and place a what on the forehead of, of, of the servants of God? A seal. Okay, so what is Jesus opening up from the scroll? What, what, what is it that it, like contains, embodies the wisdom of God in the vision? The scroll, okay? The scroll embodies the wisdom of God in, in the vision. And here the angels come and they say, we're, we're gonna go and put a seal on the head of every servant of God from the tribe of Israel. And they go around and, and they, they put this, this do, they say, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And they seal 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Okay, so, and this, this is what John is hearing. He hears the angels saying this. 12,000 from the tribe of 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 Judah and 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben and he goes, he goes on and on. And he's hearing this but when in, in Revelation 7 verse 9 when he looks and he sees what does he see? He sees a great multitude from every nation. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who can stand? Who can stand? And I think the answer to that is, man, probably in, in the light of God's holiness and perfection, none of us. But salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me and said, who are these clothed, clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, from Grace City, sir, they found the choir robes <laughs> in the bottom of the new church building. I heard that by the way, from Simon, he, he told me that you guys found like 200 choir robes in the, in the basement of the new building. Pretty cool. <laughs> These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them clean, made them white in the blood of the lamb. And then the elder goes on to um, he goes on to quote a whole bunch of scripture he, from Isaiah, Isaiah, primarily from Isaiah and it's descriptions of it's kind of this vision of comfort and so people from every tribe every tongue, every nation are standing before the throne worshipping God people who have been redeemed by God's grace who've, been, who've, who've um, given themselves to him been saved and, and are standing before him, made white, made pure, justified before, before him. And just at verse 17, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear of, from their eyes. And it's this amazing picture of comfort. And then finally in Revelation 8, the first five verses of Revelation 8, it says, when the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. 
And many, many believe that this silence was so that the prayers of the saints could be heard. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at, at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. I think that's kind of cool. It's kind of a cool picture. We, we pray, and sometimes we feel like, man, I don't know if my prayers are good enough, or I don't know if, who, who's hearing. And I think those peop- the people at the time would have been like, man, our prayers are, when we cry out to God, is he hearing us? And, and this is like, man, your prayers are being purified before the throne room of God. And they're going up. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Where, where were the, people, the kings and the rulers and the generals and the warlords and everyone that, where were they at, at the end of the sixth seal? The, yeah, they were hiding in the caves and they're saying, man, like, just let this mountain fall on me rather. And, and, and so here yeah, comes an earthquake and rumbles, flashes of lightning. And so it's the end of the world. The, Revelation 8, verse 5, the end, the end of the world. So this wraps up our series. Um, <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't wrap up my sermon either. Um, so how is this possible? Can, can we go back to the slide with the little timeline of Revelation? Um, th- there's... Um, there's if this is the end of the world, what is this, what is this vision, vision about? Um, and, and I think another question is like, man, if this is the end of the world, there's a lot of other unanswered questions that we'd love to, to think about. And there's, there's a character missing from this telling of the end of the world that's conspicuously missing. Um, this is verse 8, and there's still there, there are many chapters to go. This is like the halfway point of the book of Revelation. Um, and, or actually, we're about a third of the way in. So, so who's missing from the story? Satan. Satan. So there's no telling here of like this cosmic battle that, we're all, that we all think about very readily when we think about the book of Revelation. That's not in this. Um, and... And if this is the end of the world, why, you know, why does John put the end of the world here and not later on? I think like, part, of, part of the reason for that is that so we've got seven seals going on here. Later on, there are going to be seven trumpets. And those seven trumpets were introduced in verse 1 to 5. So we're going to have seven trumpets. And then later on, there's seven bowls as well. And each of these sets of seven kind of tell... Um, the, the, the story of, of judgment unfolding on the earth. Um, this telling of that story has a unique emphasis, and, and each of, of the other tellings of the story create layers for us in, in that telling. But I want to say, like, it's not, you can't just take those, the, the, the different tellings of, of Scripture and of the seven judgments and, like, just mesh them together. It doesn't really work. I think part of the reason for that is like we, like as people, as, as Westerners, our thinking is very like linear and left brain dominant. Um, and I'm reading a very f- interesting book at the moment. It's called A Whole New Mind, M- Moving from the Information Age to a Conceptual Age. And it's a guy named Daniel Pink. And he argues that um, for, for hundreds of years, we've been like the, the way that society has developed and, and progress has taken place, it's kind of forced us into left brain dominance. And so everybody has a tendency and inclination toward left brain or right brain dominance. Um, left brain people really like order and lists and um, are good at memorization and, and logic. And right brain people are better at conceptual thinking and 
ideas, ideation, and um, can, can handle change more readily. Um, there are strengths in both of those fields, and it's typically the, the, the left brain is like what we might think of as cerebral thinking, and the right brain is more creative thinking. So Hebrew, cult Hebrew culture was very right brain, and Greek was a lot more left brain. And um, I, I think it's fascinating that the, the Greek alphabet and our alphabet today, our reading, goes from left to right, right? And so when, when your, your left hemisphere controls the right side of your body and your rightward movement, and so when you're reading from left to right, it automatically stimulates your left brain, which is the logic side of it. And in Hebrew, in the Hebrew alphabet goes from right to left. And, and so it's more about, and it doesn't even have any vowels, right? So it's a lot more conceptual. And context is really important. And, and a lot of it is about, it's emotive. And so when you're trying to communicate something, you're not necessarily going to communicate the facts. You're going to communicate the way you need the person to feel. Okay? And, and a lot of that is expressed in, um, in apocalyptic in the apocalyptic genre or style of writing, we can't look at it, we can't take it literally, and we can't look at it as a linear progression necessarily in the way that, in the same way that you might read a narrative thing. Um, and so what, what this vision is producing for us is kind of layers of feeling and layers of, um, of, of understanding conceptually God's sovereignty within the course of history. Okay, so all of that said, there are some big ideas that we can take away from, from this text that I think would be good for us to kind of marinate in. Um, I'm sure that as we've gone through the text, like when you think of the four horsemen, there are things that come to mind for us within our day that you could pin onto each of those horsemen, maybe even people. Um, like just, I, I read the news through BBC, and it's funny because yesterday I went on, like when I looked at the news, there was the kind of four big articles that were on there. I was like, oh, I could link each of these to one of the four horsemen. <laughs> And, and the, the temptation for a very like, linear thinker is, oh, this matches up. That means like, maybe the end, of the, near is, the end of the world is near. Like Maybe it's coming. You know, and you think of, like, we're in a time of war. And the, like, for most of us, for most of our adult life, except for those who are a little older, the, the war in Syria has been going on for most of our adult lives. The, there was a rocket launch the other day that like caused stirred rumors of war, like the hashtag World War Three. Um, there's there's a deadly coronavirus that is threatening to become an epidemic. Do do we panic? No. Thank you. <laughs> no. We don't. We don't panic. That's it. God's intention through this is to help us understand that exactly the opposite is true. When we encounter these things, his, his, his heart for us is not that we panic, but it's quite the opposite. Rather than looking at the news and allowing that, you know, if you read the news or like, and allow that to become the primary narrative of what the world is today, like you'd probably end up like, man, the world is just like going to hell in a handbasket. This is, you know, this is the end. And, and, and God's intention is for us to look beyond those things to the bigger context. Not just look at the, the, these things that are foreign to the way he wired us. To look at the broader context and say, man, God is in control.
Um, so do these horses, horsemen stand for specific things? I think in a broad sense, yes, but I don't think that they're particular people. And I believe that they point to the spiritual condition of the world. And that in a lot of ways, sin is turning in on itself and becoming its own, um, its own judgment. Sin is condemning itself. Um, I do think that um, there are spiritual forces at play in this world. I don't think that there are literally four horsemen like riding around the world causing carnage, but I do think that there are spiritual forces at play, and I think the other, the later tellings will will make some of that a little more obvious, and I'll let Simon deal with some of that stuff. But I think that God is wanting to help us see that until such a time that he's ready to bring final judgment, we continue to see the effects of a living world where, where there's brokenness, and we need, to, we need to understand how to live within that context. Um, I think one of the things that's really comforting is that, and it's good to notice, that the authority of each horseman is, is limited. Like, firstly, each of them respond to the, the voice of the heavenly creature. Um, the white horse is given, is given authority, a, a crown is put on his head, and so his authority is given to him and can be taken away. The red horse, it says, is permitted to go out and take peace from the earth, and that permission can be relinquished, stopped. The black horse takes his instruction from the voice that comes from the midst of the four creatures. The pale horse is limited to a quarter of the earth. And so all of them, it's, it's saying there's, there's some kind of limitation that these guys, they're, they're on a leash. And their leash is, is, is shorter than, than what it appears. Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples knew and understood that even though he hasn't brought the final, well, that the final judgment isn't coming yet, everything playing out is playing out under his watchful eye. So God's eye is upon you. I want you to know that if you're the victim of an injustice, if you're the victim of violence, if you've been the victim of some kind of injustice or even an illness, God sees that and he grieves over that. It doesn't say any, anywhere that any of these things are endorsed by, by Jesus, that he sees them as good, but it says that it, these things need to play themselves out. And I know that those are, those are things that are sometimes difficult for us to understand, but I think it points to the need for us to trust God in his sovereignty. So, why doesn't Jesus just intervene right now? Like, if, he, if these things are subject to him, why, not just, why does he not just come now and just put an end to it all? I think what we, one of the things that we discovered is that it would be helpful in answering that question to just ask ourselves, if God were to destroy all evil right now on the basis of his righteousness, who can stand? If you were to be measured against the righteousness of God, would you be counted as perfect? And I know what a lot of you are thinking. You're thinking like, yes, of course, um, the redeeming work of Christ. I, I can stand before God. And it, it, it even says it in the text. It says that you know, they, the people were justified, that they were given white robes, and they were able to stand before the throne. And, and that's exactly it. Apart from the grace of Christ, and his redeeming work on the cross, none of us would stand or be counted as worthy of surviving God's judgment. And so it's God's mercy. When, you, when that question comes into your mind, like, man, God, like, when is it gonna happen? Counted as God's mercy that his final day of judgment has not come yet. He's chosen not to destroy the world in its depravity, not yet, but to extend a lifeline that will outlast sin. And that lifeline is for us, for those of us who have stepped into a relationship with God, who have submitted our lives to Jesus. But it's for others who do not yet know him. And when, 
when the voice of the, when the when the um, martyrs under the altar are, are told, man, there are more to be added, there are more to come. That's something that should evoke in us a sense of man, this is something that God's grace has been shown to me, and. And even though there's this pain in the waiting, God's grace is for those who are, are yet to encounter him. I think, secondly, to the question of why God doesn't just destroy the world, in as much as there are horrible things going on in the world, there are also many beautiful and good things playing out in the world. Just because everything is tainted by sin doesn't mean that everything is beyond hope. Um, what this passage is telling us is that hope is the, de- is the defining narrative. Every day, each one of us get to live our lives making choices about how we're going to engage with the people around us. We get to choose how we exercise the authority that's been given to us. And each one of us, Genesis, Genesis 1 verse 26 to 28 says, describes man being made in the image of God and told to take dominion. And so each one of us has been given dominion. You might not be a dictator or ruler of a country, but you have dominion. You have, you have a, circle, a sphere of influence in your life. And you can choose whether um, to disempower others or whether to exercise godly authority authority and empower others. And you can choose whether, um, whether to bring grace and, and peace into others' lives or, or if you're going to bring destruction and hurt. And I, th- I think of a world in which more and more people allow themselves to be given to a vision of what it looks like to follow God in that way. And, and how outside of the limited authority that these horsemen have, these major issues, how a groundswell of God's love and his, his mercy and his grace played out through faithful community can change things drastically for people. And Will it be in conflict with the ways of the world? Often it will. Standing for God's justice, for his righteousness and his truth is not always going to square well with the prevailing ideologies of, of this world. But that doesn't mean that we, that isn't a beautiful opportunity. It doesn't mean that it doesn't negate the goodness of, of what God can do through us. Um, I had another quote that I wanted to read, but I think I've probably gone over time already. Um, I think there's, there's a, um, there's, there's a really great um, doxology in the book of Jude that kind of sums up in a way the heart that God would have us have toward him through this, and it says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, him who is able to help you stand, now to him who is able to keep you falling and present you faultless before the throne of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty both now and forever, amen. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this word, I thank you for this book, and Lord, I thank you for your truth that exists in our lives, Lord God. I pray for each person here, Lord God, that um, you would embody your wisdom and your truth in each one of them in a way that um, causes them to extend your light and your, your peace and your, judgment, your justice, Lord, in ways that defy Uh, the brokenness of this world. Um, Lord, I pray that you would seal each one of us with your authority, 
Lord, that you would put your seal upon us, Lord, um, so that we would be made strong, Lord God, that we would be strengthened. Um, Lord, I pray for your, your presence amongst Grace City as a community, for the church in the city of Portland, Lord God, and beyond. Lord, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your power. Amen. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.